it's the interlude between the series on the parables and jumping into the Gospel of Mark. It's a psalm that for years I have been fascinated by. Um, The psalms, beautiful in their own right, uh, poetic in their construction, uh, walk us through, as one scholar said, like a gymnasium of the entire Christian life. The psalms put us through our paces, as it were. And so this morning, we're going to spend a little bit of time thinking about Psalm 63. It's a psalm of David uh, while he was in the wilderness of Judah. And so I would invite you to stand uh, with me. The text is in your program. There are Bibles on the seat rack in front of you, but uh, read along with me as I read aloud. Psalm 63, a psalm of David when he was in the wilderness of Judah. Oh God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. So I have looked upon you in the sanctuary, beholding your power and glory, because your steadfast love is better than life. My lips will praise you. So I will bless you as long as I live. In your name, I will lift up my hands. My soul will be satisfied as with fat and rich food, and my mouth will praise you with joyful lips. When I remember you upon my bed and meditate on you in the watches of the night, for you have been my help, and in the shadow of your wings, I will sing for joy. My soul clings to you. Your right hand upholds me. But those who seek to destroy my life shall go down into the depths of the earth. They shall be given over to the power of the sword. They shall be a portion for jackals. But the king shall rejoice in God All who swear by him shall exult, for the mouths of liars will be stopped. This is God's word, and it is absolutely true. Let's pray. Father, for some of us this morning, today feels like just another day in paradise. And for some, this feels like another day lost deep in a wood where we are not quite sure which end is up, which way we're going, and how to get out. So, Father, this day, um, would you, by your grace and through your Spirit, encourage us in the same way that you encouraged David while he, too, was battling through the wilderness. Would you help us to see you as more beautiful and believable than anything else that this world has or could offer? And that our hearts would be stirred to great worship and great satisfaction. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Be seated. A few weeks ago, there was an interview in the Washington Post. It was a really long interview. It was over 10,000 words where they sat down and interviewed Tim Cook, who is the CEO of Apple, um, this being the kind of the five-year anniversary of the most scrutinized, 
watched, commented on um, corporate succession maybe ever when uh, Steve Jobs handed over the reins to Tim Cook, no one thought that Steve would be gone, but a mere few weeks later from pancreatic cancer. In fact, even in the interview, Tim said, I, I thought for sure he'd bounce. He always did. And yet there he was running the world's, uh, what would be one of the world's largest companies. Fascinating interview. This, the, uh, the occasion of the interview uh, was that on his desk was an iPhone, one of the things that Apple has made a lot of money selling of late. It was the one billionth, with a B, iPhone sold. Can you imagine being part of a movement where um, you have had a part in defining a category now so ubiquitous. The interviewer asked Tim, what has changed and what stays the same? He said a lot of things have changed in terms of how we do stuff, but, but this one thing, Cook says, our North Star is still the same. The North Star has always been the same, which for us is about making insanely great products that really change the world in some way enrich people's lives. And so our reason for being hasn't changed. Other things change, but that's the thread that ties everyone together. Think about it for a second. Now you can, uh, whether you are an Apple user or not, matters not. Whether you think that they make insanely great products or not really doesn't matter. Um, The point of it is for their culture, for what they are doing, what they're attempting to do is always keep that as the base, as the foundation, as the guiding point of what is going to influence every other thing they do and every other decision that they make. Now, that's interesting because all of us, to some degree and to some extent, operate that exact same way. For all of us, there is a picture of what satisfaction is, of what, of what fulfillment is. And so we know when our life has gotten away from that, and we know what it feels like to drive towards that. So this morning, I want to I think about two concepts and the ways that they, that they interact and they, and they interface with one another, okay? The two concepts are this, and there's a blank note page in there, so you might want to jot this down. Here's the, here's the two concepts. Worship is affection. Worship is action. Worship is affection. And worship is action. Now, for some of you, this may be incredibly familiar. And for some of you, this may not be. When we think about worship, when we say, oh, I'm going to worship today, Many of us are using that in the context of I'm going to engage in an action. I'm going to sing songs. I'm going to pray prayers. I'm going to attentively listen as the word of God is declared. These are things that we do. And worship is certainly no less than action. But what I want to, set, what I want to begin to explore this morning 
is how worship is not only action, but it's also affection. And you see that here in the psalm. The psalm traces beautifully this movement of, of affection starting with desire. Starting with desire. What we see here is uh, David talking in the beginning of the psalm about his desire. Years ago in his, um, in his book, Let the Nations Be Glad, John Piper had a really interesting quote. He's, I'm sure it's one that he both loves and hates because it's one that he um, often gets asked about, but it's also one that's really powerful. And this is what he said, thinking about uh, worship as affection. He said, missions, this idea of going to the nations, this idea of going out and going to the nations, missions exists because worship doesn't. Missions exist because worship doesn't. Worship is ultimate, not missions, because God is ultimate, not man. When this age is over and the countless millions of redeemed fall on their faces before the throne of God, missions will be no more. But worship will remain. The reason that Piper has had to go back and explain that quote so many times is because of this category that we're talking about. Everybody hears that and goes, okay, worship is forever. So how many versions of the doxology are there? Right, because we've, we've, we've taken worship and put it solely in the category of action. We miss the broader category of affection. Okay, so what we see here in the psalm first is David really moved at an affective, at a, at a deep down, at a core level by desire. So here's the first principle that I want you to see this morning. Worship is action that is preceded by affection. Worship is action that is preceded by affection. Look at what he says. Oh God. You are my God. Earnestly, I seek you. Right away, one of the things that we see David saying is that his heart has been captured. His affections, everything down to his deepest desires have been captured by the beauty, the radiance, the magnificence of God. And the beautiful thing is he knows he knows that he's at a loss. Why does he know that he's at a loss? Okay, so the psalm uh, starts out, and it says this is a psalm of David while in the wilderness. We, one of the things that we have to remember here is that for the Israelites, the temple, the the place where God's physical presence was, where the, uh, where, where the Holy of Holies was, where the, uh, the Ark of the Covenant was, where God, where the mercy seat was, right? This is before Pentecost. This is before the Spirit of God rushed upon the entire earth and filled God's people. God's presence was located in a particular place. David, having been driven out of the kingdom, now in the wilderness, David is longing for pining after the presence of God. Because what he knows is he will not be satisfied with anything else. So here's, the, here's one of the things that we have to consider straight away, and that is this. 
when we are thrust into the wilderness, and I'm not saying necessarily that you're lost in the woods, life can be incredibly disorienting. Think about the categories that Steve prayed through just a few moments ago. Cancer. Car accidents. Futility at work and frustration at home. Persecution on the one side, apathy on the other. If ever you want to experience the wilderness of life, just wait a few minutes. It's kind of like the weather in Texas. If you don't like it, wait a few minutes. Unless it's summertime. Then it's just sad. Life can be incredibly disorienting. And the wilderness often exposes in us those places that we instinctively go to. Let me back up a little bit further. You and I were not made for wilderness. I don't care what the science textbook says. I don't care about hunter-gatherer or forager or anything else. The thing about it is, friends, is you and I were made for shalom. We were made for the place where we and God's presence, there was no interruption. There was no fighting with the earth. There was no fighting with one another. There was no disconnect between us and God. That is what we were designed for. And in losing that, our innate desire is to get back to that or at least settle for what the closest alternative to that we can build at the time. And so whether it's through pills or hard work, whether it's through deifying the family or working ourselves to death, whether it's curling up in our bed and throwing the covers over our head or just putting Netflix on full-on open pipe. (laughs) We're looking to restore Eden because we weren't made for chaos and we weren't made for wilderness. So what happens? You and I go and we are faced with wilderness. What is it that you turn to? What is it that you cry out for? What is it that what is that thing that without thinking about it you immediately turn to? That's not a that's not a death sentence by the way. It's just a bit of information. Because what David said When he found himself in the wilderness, he said, Oh God, oh God, you are my God. Earnestly, earnestly, he says, I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. Have you ever been in a place where you have been so incredibly parched, so incredibly thirsty? You see those survival shows on some of the cable channels and you see people that are trained in in high-intensity wilderness survival. Do you want to know what thirst does? Thirst creates bad decisions. People who know better can become so desperate and so thirsty, they'll make really bad decisions. Oh, look, there's water. It's standing water, not moving water. And again, I know nothing about camping beyond that drinking standing water in the wilderness 
that an animal could have done things to probably is bad. Like, I don't know much, but I know that. But you see people driven by thirst, don't you? And you see what they do. They're so thirsty, they're willing to risk the standing water because they know if they don't drink something, they're going to die. And what David says here is, oh God, you are my God. Earnestly, I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. He knows that there is no anesthesia. There is no counterfeit. There is no, there is no shadow of Eden that he will be satisfied with. It is God and God alone. And he cries out and he says, my soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. As in a dry and weary land where there is no water. His thirst is driving him. Because deep down, what is moving David is his deepest affections have been transformed. His deepest affections have been transformed because no shadow of Eden will work any longer. No shadow of Eden, no counterfeit glory will satisfy him. And he cries out and says, God, help me. Jonathan Edwards says this. He says, the mark of authentic spiritual experience is that you become satisfied with God for who he is and not just the benefits he gives you. That's what we talked about last week with the prodigal son, isn't it? Both the younger brother and the older brother in their sin had become blind to the goodness and the generosity of God. And in so doing, lost sight of God, their loving, gracious, heavenly Father who gives them good things, but ultimately is their satisfaction, whether in plenty or in want. In losing sight of the goodness and the generosity of God, we become angry when all of a sudden blessings are not coming our way. We become angry when all of a sudden wilderness is before us. It's it's what the Israelites said when they were out in the wilderness. They said, did you bring us out here to die? And so much in the same way, like the Israelites who forget God and forget his goodness and forget his generosity, we go filling our our worlds with counterfeit glory. We go filling our worlds with counterfeit good, only to find out at the end of the day, it was no better than the putrid standing water in the wilderness. It makes us sick because it could never satisfy. Another friend of mine put it this way. He said, we don't come for Christ's salvation, but to Christ who saves. We don't come for Christ's forgiveness, but to Christ who forgives. We don't come for Christ's peace, but to Christ who is our peace. There is a difference between Jesus as a means to an end and Jesus who is our end. When we are satisfied in Christ, we know that when we are in the wilderness, there is nothing else. There is no other good, there is no other glory that will satisfy. Beloved, that is what it looks like to have a transformed affection. That is what it looks like to have a a, a life, a soul, a, a heart that has been made alive to the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ, where we're no longer blind to the goodness and generosity of God, but we recognize that we were made for him by him. And we will be satisfied with no one else but him.
Verse 2. So I've looked upon you in the sanctuary, beholding your power and your glory. Now look, again, like I said, you have to remember that for David, for the Israelites, the temple was central. The temple was central to their way of life, to their, to their experience of God, to their, to their piety and devotion. And what David is remembering here is, is what he is saying is, in the wilderness, what I long for more than anything else is a heart set aflame by worship. Now, if I'm being honest with you, when I'm in the wilderness, when my clock hits 8 o'clock on Sunday morning or 7 or 6 or toddler, so, you know, pick a time. Um, when I'm in the wilderness, my inclination is not I must run to the place where God has promised he would be. See, God has promised even this day, like he was there for David, that he is here. We're not talking about him in some abstract sense. We're hearing his word declared to us that by his spirit, he is alive and he is here and he is working. Much of modernity has told us that, um, that life is found in our family, our vocation, our living conditions, our achievement, our wealth, our good standing in the world. And it's true that, that none of these things are unbiblical. None of these things are bad, but none of these things can give life. They can only occupy our life. What David was preoccupied by was the only thing that could give life, looking upon him in the sanctuary, beholding God in his power and his glory. And then he goes on and he says, because your steadfast love is better than life, my lips will praise you. Because your steadfast love, what, what he's saying there is because your, your chesed, your covenant faithfulness, because God, you are a God that makes and keeps all of your promises. And that, that promise making and promise keeping flows out of your goodness and generosity. You are a God who never breaks his word. And you have pursued your people from the foundation of time because you love them. You sent Christ to, to die for their sins, but Jesus didn't make God love us. Jesus came and died for us because God loves us. And David here, even in a pre-Messianic way, prefiguring this glorious truth that because your covenant faithfulness, because your steadfast love is better than life, because your covenant faithfulness is where life begins, my lips will praise you. When you're in the wilderness, as the survival shows teach us, you have to know where to look for water and for nourishment. You have to stay away from the stuff that'll make you sick, and you have to go to the places that can, that can nourish you and that can satisfy. And beloved, here's the thing. 
It is in the place where God's spirit dwells. It is in the place where God's word is declared and his table is set. This is the place where we meet with Jesus and we find our affections warmed and transformed because he has set his affection on us. The orientation of our life, the north star of our life, make no mistake, this will be the thing that we pursue at all cost because we are using it as the way, as the thing that's going to guide us to a picture of a good life, a picture of satisfaction, or a picture of the Eden that we have lost and are trying to recover. So the question for you and I as we wrestle with this this morning is what is that place? What is that place? What is the thing that is driving your desire? What is the thing that if taken away would bring you great angst and great um, great distress? What is that thing and where is that place? What is the thing that brings you to such a point of frustration that when you get home at night, you're just angry? What's the thing that that when it's blocked and when you can't get to it makes you intolerable to be around? What's the thing when it's taken away brings you such distress? There's something there There's something there that's helping to orient and guide your life. And so when we think about when we think about worship, before we think about songs and hymns and spiritual songs, we think about the basis, the the foundation of our life. What is the thing that is driving your affections? David said in verse four, so I will bless you. I will bless you as long as I live. In your name, I will lift up my hands. Again, he is longing for that day, for that experience where his life is once again consumed in the worship of Almighty God. But he moves on, right? Because it's not only, the psalm is not only a picture of desire, the psalm is also a picture of delight. Here's the second thing I want you to see this morning. The second thing that I want you to see is that if first worship is action that is preceded by affection, the second thing in in delight that I want you to see is that worship is action that flows from affection. Worship is action that flows from affection. There's incredibly powerful language in here in verse 5 where David says, My soul will be satisfied as with fat and rich food. Now, as a father of young people um, who will increasingly become both aware and frustrated that I'm using them as sermon illustrations constantly, I'm sure it'll be fine. Um, There's nothing quite like that moment where Someone, you, your spouse, whatever, has worked hard to put a delightful dinner before you only to find out that in your mind, you really were looking forward to something else. 
And they say, how is it? And you say, it's good. It's good. Yeah, it's great. Good, good job. Good slaving away in the kitchen for hours. Especially some of your kids do that. I don't like it. David says, my soul will be satisfied as with fat and rich food. It is, it is, um, it is David saying that what he has longed for, he has been given and given in abundance to the point that he is, that he is satiated and happy. Because you realize in Levitical law, when it comes to the worshiping practices of the church, there would be no worshiper in the church, even the king, that would be partaking of the fat in the, in the, in the meat offerings and the offerings that are laid before the altar. The fat is what is given to the Lord. And what David is saying here is that he has been satisfied to the point that it is as if God has given the portion of the choicest store that has been reserved for him alone and given it to David. Why? Because he's good and he's generous. And he knows that there is no shadow of Eden that we will be satisfied in anything else apart from him. And so when he gives, he gives lavishly and abundantly. And you say, wait a minute. I don't feel lavishly or abundantly given to. It's like the story I heard um, some years ago at a Presbytery meeting um, about a woman who was in her, uh, she was a widow, she was in her solitary apartment. Uh, Not many means to her name not many goods that she could hold on to. And a member of a pastoral staff was going over to visit her and the, the door was cracked and they went in and she was getting ready to, to pray and eat. It was a can of beans that she had opened up. It was really all that was there in the pantry. And she opens up the can of beans and is giving thanks. And she says, all of this and Jesus too. Thank you, Lord. all of this and Jesus too. It forces the question, right, of what actually would we be satisfied with? What is the thing that we are looking to God to provide in order for us to check that box of satisfaction? Could it possibly be, like we mentioned a few moments ago, that our satisfaction quotient is not with God himself, but with what he provides? And if what he provides isn't up on the list enough for us in terms of what we are expecting to have in our life, all of a sudden our dissatisfaction level rises. Beloved, What we have been promised in this world is nothing. And God and his son, Jesus Christ, has given us everything. All of this that we enjoy on top of Christ is bonus. All of this that we enjoy on top of Christ is bonus. And David says, my soul will be satisfied. I will be filled. I will be complete. This is in contrast to the the parched mouth and the, the unquenched thirst that he spoke about a few verses 
earlier. So if that experience, has, if that experience of, of, of thirst and longing has sharpened his longings and desire for God, so also has his longings through the watches of the night. Look at what he says. When I remember you upon my bed and meditate on you in the watches of the night. Now look, this is David in the wilderness. There are uh, Absalom's armies could be coming at any moment to, uh, to ambush David. And what he's saying is even in the watches of the night, even in my most anxious time, right? The thing, even as I'm not getting much sleep, the thing that is keeping me going here is meditating on you day and night, even in the watches of the night. This is what is, is, is cultivating further and deeper desire in David's heart for the Lord. For you have been my help, he says, and in the shadow of your wings, I will sing for joy. The problem for many of us when we think about what is, in fact, going to satisfy us is we are not accustomed to slow, methodical fixes. I want fast fixes. The internet age has not helped me at all. We want fast fixes. And so when it comes to cultivating in us this transformed desire, this this recast affection, look, this can take time. And we're not used to that. We put way more emphasis in what God is expected to do in a 75-minute worship service and not near enough expectation in what God is slowly cultivating over 20 years of worshiping. Because we're not used to slow fixes. And so we come and we hear the word of God faithfully preached. We come and we take the table and find our souls nourished. We're not used to slow fixes and we go, I didn't feel anything. It's not doing anything to me. We're expecting Damascus. When instead God has lined out a way in the wilderness we're expecting Damascus when God has lined out for us a way in the wilderness. What is the thing then that is the source of your delight? What is the thing, what is the standard that you're holding the Lord to and saying, unless this comes, I will not be, I will not be satisfied? David goes on um, as the psalm turns. And he thinks about, my soul will cling to you. Your right hand upholds me. Here's the third principle I want you to see. Worship is action that subdues lesser affections. Worship is action that subdues lesser affections. He says, you have been, you have been my help. 
And in the shadow of your wings, I will sing for joy. My soul clings to you and your right hand upholds me. This is God as David's defense. It's the last point of our, of our text today, that God is our defense. He says, you have been my help. Part of us being satisfied in him is the retelling of the mighty acts and deeds that God has done. This is why we need, this is one of the myriad of reasons why we need community in our lives. We need people around us that are, that are corporately together declaring the goodness and the generosity of God in all of the things that he has done and all the mighty ways that he has moved and acted and all the ways that he has kept his promises. Because I don't know about you, but I forget all of those things and only remember the bad. And I need you every week to declare for me not all the bad stuff I'm dwelling on, but all the good things that God has done, all the ways that he's kept his promises, and all the ways that everything in Christ Jesus are yes and amen. This is what I need from you, and I think this is what you need from me. We need to gather here today and have our North Star reset. Because it is only in telling a better story that all the lesser untrue stories lose their power. You and I were made for Eden, but we so quickly forget that we're willing to make camp anywhere and build whatever idol we have to in order to survive in the wilderness and think that it's good enough. But it is only when we declare this story together that God has been our defense, that he has been our help, that our souls have clung to him and his right hand has upheld us, that we have found safety and refuge in the shadow of his wings and that we therefore declare and sing for joy. When our lives rightly ordered and our affections rightly set are on God alone, it is there that we are protected. Our hearts and minds are being guarded because they are dwelling on Christ Jesus. Um, If we consider the language of the psalm here, dwelling in God's presence day and night will protect our minds and our hearts from chasing after other gods that will not satisfy and other stories that don't end with happy endings. So it's been said with, the, with college football being back, uh, we hear once again that a, a strong defense is only helped by a great offense. That, some, some, that may have worked for somebody yesterday. I don't know. I'm finding I don't have the stamina to watch college football as much as I used to. I, just, I, it, I, I get heart. It hurts. <laughs> hurts its side. Um, Part of coming to and engaging in the act of worship is this engaging in the act of subduing lesser stories and subduing lesser affections. It is going on the offensive. It is not like worship is your multivitamin that you come in and check in with every so often. That's the thing, right? We, we view this place and this time as something that is to the periphery of our life. It's just something that good Christians do. But at the end of the day, I don't need it because I can get with God anywhere because we've lost the fact that God's presence has always been ordered around a corporate life first and a private life second. There's nothing in the Bible that said that stopped. And that my worship and your worship is actually incomplete without each of us gathered here together as we declare and rejoice in the fact that God has been our defense. This is what David says as he, um, 
as he concludes verse 11. Because he said, this is almost creedal language, right, in verses 9 and 10. But those who seek to destroy my life, Absalom, shall go down into the depths of the earth. They shall be given over to the power of the sword. They shall be a portion for jackals. But the king shall rejoice in God. All who swear by him shall exult, for the mouths of liars will be stopped. What David said is, God is going to do it. He's going to keep his promises, and he's going to show himself victorious. So David concludes the psalm by firmly placing his trust and his allegiance in the Lord's faithfulness. His joy is in God winning the battle for him. And beloved, our joy is that the better David, Jesus, did the same thing perfectly on our behalf because David could not and Moses could not and Abraham could not and Adam could not and we cannot. We trust in King Jesus to accomplish for us and give to us that which we could not do or earn on our own. And at the end of days, the exaltation will belong to God alone in Christ. And we who are his will be part of a never-ending celebration, a celebration which we have tastes and foreshadowing of here. But if ever there was a wonder of whether any other competing story is true, or this one is the true one. It's this one. As one author said, one of the beautiful things about the eschaton, about the end of days, about the world to come, is that it ends with neither bang nor whimper, but the laughter of a wedding feast. It ends with neither bang nor whimper, but the laughter of a wedding feast. And that's where it's all going, and it's a slow road, and it's hard to get there. And we look at these imperfect means, these imperfect people that God has called and put in places of, of, of servant leadership, and we go, I don't know, I don't see it. But beloved, here's the thing. God's the one that's doing the work. God is the one that satisfies, and he is the only one that can satisfy so the question that we have to contend with this day is, what is the North Star of your life? What, is the, what are those checkboxes that you are looking for, for for ultimate satisfaction? And whatever point, of, whatever point that brings you to, whether it is conviction or whether it is callousness, bring all of those things to Jesus. Today, come and bring all those things to him and say, I don't want these gifts and these benefits and all these things to be the source of my satisfaction. I want you to be my source of satisfaction, Jesus. I want you to be the one that actually is the one at the center of my life and driving all of my affections. And when you forget, and you will, come again. Come needy, come empty-handed. Come beat up and bruised broken by the fall. As the old hymn said, if you tarry until you're better, you'll never come at all. Come to Jesus. Come and find your desire transformed, your delight in him, and your defense in him. For he is good and he keeps his promises. He always has and he always will.